This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the special Sunday mailbag edition. That's right, we're back on the weekend. We're working that hard. We've come into the studio, especially on a Sunday, to record it. I can't, I can't say that. Ah, we're doing this on Friday. I know. I tried. I, I can't bring myself to do it, mate. I'm just too honest. Oh, that's a problem. The honest person here, of course, is me, Scott Phillips, and the even more honest bloke is Anirban Mahanti. The good doctor is in the house, and we are here, virtually speaking at least, on a Sunday to bring you a special mailbag episode. The mailbag was that full. We had that many people seeking our thoughts and, and advice. We thought we'd do a special edition of mailbag. So if you're listening to this, thank you for giving us a little bit of extra time of your time as we go through some of your questions. Now, mate, a question, we'll get straight into it, from Liam. Liam's asking, well, so here he says, hey boys, quick update. The Convincing a Young Person to Get Started Money Hacks podcast is making a massive ripple effect. It's great to see. I like massive and I like ripple. (laughs) (laughs) Good going, you know, Liam, man, and this is really good. Massive ripple sounds like a good ice cream. It sounds like Imagine the streets, massive ripple ice cream. Massive ripple ice cream. All right, Liam is very happy. We're making, look, you know what? This is the thing, mate. I'm going to editorialize just very briefly. We don't get paid specifically to do this podcast. Certainly no one pays to listen to this podcast because, frankly, they wouldn't, let's be honest. But the good thing is we do it because we kind of want to spread the love of investing. And, and if we're doing that, then I don't reckon there's a higher bit of praise we could be given, quite honestly. We, we try and educate. We try and inform. But if we can motivate some people to invest, I mean, I'll, I'll put that at the top of my list, mate. That, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, especially the youth or the young. Exactly. And they win. So thank you, Liam. Thanks for the kind words, mate. Uh, And again, please do tell your friends because, well, we always just want the, frankly, ego boost of having more listeners. Uh, The more people listen, hopefully, the more people are investing better, and we think that's probably worth doing too. So Liam says, also, a question which has been recently touched on, but I'd love more depth. Without getting on your high horse, I'm looking at you, Scott. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I've been listening to a property podcast in conjunction with you boys and was really wondering why you have such a negative opinion on property investing. Liam, just quietly, you don't have to worry about me being on the high horse, mate. You ask a property investing question, mate, I'm happily sitting on the ground here. Doc is Doc is getting on the biggest thoroughbred he can find for a run-up on this one. He says, I was, floating the, I was floating the idea of building a solid stock portfolio, then pulling out some money when a suitable investment property was on the market, while still keeping a good amount compounding in the stock market. What are your thoughts? Hope your work, in quotes... Thank you, Liam. In the US, went went well, Scott. I'm grateful for both your insights. Full on, Liam. You've rescued yourself, mate. You've uh, you, you've you've thrown some shade at me about my work and my high horse, but you've at least said you love my work. So I'm happy with that. I'll take that. Doc, why do you hate Liam's idea to invest in property? Why are you so why why be so negative, mate? Why not be happy? You know, man. Why shouldn't the, Liam invest in property? Here's the thing. First of all, I'm going to give Liam um, full marks for actually catching on that. You know, you really did some work <laughs> while you were in the States. <laughs> like, can I tell you, I was, a, I was a bit crook on the way over. I almost didn't make it. I was a bit yeah. sick. Uh, so I almost pulled out. But I, I literally didn't see a single site while I was there. I got there on Friday night. I spent Saturday and Sunday mostly in bed. We went out for a drink on Sunday night. So you didn't do any work. You, no, had, you I, went, I, you I, went I, out for no, drinks. Hang on, hang on. I, I worked during the week from Monday to Friday. My point was I didn't see a single site. I, I, saw, the, I saw one of the monuments from the plane on the way in. Mm. Uh, and we did, as I said, I did, we did go, I did get the train into town and we, we had a, a, a bit of dinner and drink on the Sunday. That was it. It was work the rest of the time. Hmm. Do, very do, efficient. Do, do. Tell the boss, will you? Okay. How hard I worked. Yeah. Please. All right. Okay. Should we get back to Liam's question? <laughs> yeah. <that's good. laughs> so, Mate, why, why are you so negative about property investing? For the love of God, doc, why be such a, 
spoil sport. Oh, I'm not okay. I'm, let me clarify this. <laughs> I'm not negative on on on. Oh, proper, dude, come uh, on. No, no one listening to this podcast <laughs> believes that. That was a nice try. <laughs> okay. Everyone has just fallen. There are people driving who've all of a sudden had an accident now because <laughs> they go, "What the hell? Can you say that?" <laughs> okay. So here, here's the thing, right? With 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 property investing, I think there's a couple of angles here that that's worth remembering. One number one thing is that property investing really works. It, because of the leverage, right, to a large extent. So when I say leverage, I mean basically yeah. if you if you buy a property worth a million, just to pick a number, and you you basically had to only put up hundred k yep. of your own money, yep. you basically now leveraged it ten, almost like you know ten is to one, right? Right. And so if the property goes from one million to one point one million, yeah, the property value has gone up ten percent. You've actually doubled your money. You've doubled the amount of you put in hundred grand. Yeah. You've now got effectively two hundred grand worth of equity. Yeah. That's what leverage does, right? It takes a a ten percent gain in the asset. But it turns out into a doubling of the money you actually put in. Yeah, exactly. So, that, so that's that's why I mean, uh, you know, property investing has been uh, such a good game, right? Because of the leverage, and it works really well on the upside. It doesn't really work that well if the market is flat, and it really does not work when the market goes down. And let's uh, let's actually flesh that out because using my previous example, if we had a million dollar house, we put a hundred grand into. Yeah. If that goes down ten percent from a million to nine hundred thousand, that's pretty crappy. Yeah. That takes your equity from 100,000 to uh, zero. Zero. So you lost everything. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. <laughs> so it works. So that's that's the problem with uh, with the with the property. I think it, it's a leveraged bet. Right. And, um, and you're making big leveraged bets as well, right? Because, you know, well, let's be honest here. Nothing in, at least in the capital cities, <laughs> in the big capital cities is going to be available for like, you know, less than median, median prices around right. like a million bucks. And so, so your, your million dollar property, if you buy if 100 grand worth of shares... And it falls ten percent, you lose ten grand. So yeah, that still kind of sucks. But you still got ninety grand left over. Yeah. If your million dollar property goes down by ten percent, you're losing everything. That's the that leverage magnifies your gains, but also magnifies your losses. Yeah. So that's the number one thing. That's, that's the, this leverage. So the number two aspect is we are among one of the most uh, leveraged uh, developed economies. When when I say we, I mean the the people of the country as a whole. Not I'm not talking about the country. Not talking about the the country's bank, but right. the people the pe- people of the country's bank. So on. So not not government debt, not even corporate debt, but the the household household debt. Yeah, is among the highest as a percentage of what GDP? I assume. Yeah, percent. Uh, um, no, so highest in terms of disposable income. Right. Okay. Um, or you know, if you think of disposable income, so how much debt versus disposable income we have got? Okay. It's one of the highest, right? So again, if it has two effects, right? I mean, if we've got a lot of debt in the community, when I say community, mm-hmm. I mean the Australian community of people, um, then it, it does a couple of things, right? It, it, it helps slow the economy because people have less money to spend. Mm-hmm. It also means that the capacity to borrow more decreases irrespective of interest rates going down. Um, it does push back on the capacity of people, uh, ability of people to borrow. Now, of course, a couple of things that work in Australia's favor, and this is really, you know, this is really a great Australian story. Migration works in Australia's favor. It does. Right, and then a lot of people that come to Australia because Australia is a beautiful country. So the more people come here, the higher economic growth is and the more demand for housing in this particular instance because you simply need more houses to house more people, right? Yeah, but there's another factor. There's an interesting factor that works there, right? So if you get a lot of people who, um, if you're getting like, you know, 150,000 people coming in, those 150,000 people effectively coming in, let's assume, you know, a lot of them would come in with net zero debt, right? So they actually have the capacity <laughs> to borrow. Right, they are okay. likely to work, yep. right? So and that's really helping, right? But, you know, like still, 
net net i mean the the migration is still a small percentage of the overall population right, right. so i just don't like the current setup of um, the property market as an investment idea um, I don't like the fact that you know I've got to make this leveraged bet, um, so that's why I'm negative, right? I mean, I'm not. I would not tell anyone that if you wanted to buy a house to live in, that you shouldn't buy it. That I would never say because you know a house is a place of shelter. But as an investment idea, it is really low down the pecking order for myself. Okay, but let me let me play devil's advocate for Liam's for Liam's sake, mate. I, I don't necessarily strongly disagree with you, by the way. But for Liam's sake. Maybe the Australian stock market goes up 10% on average over the next five or 10 years, right? If you're leveraged 10 to 1, you've only got to get the equivalent of 1% per year to earn the same amount. Are you really saying that over the next 10 years, we're not going to see at least a 10% increase in property prices? I mean, is it still not a worthwhile decision to say, you know what, I'm happy to get a lower than past history kind of growth? I may not get the same growth that we've had in house prices over the last 30 years, but even a moderate growth of 3 4 5% a year over the next 10 years using that leverage, aren't I still in a pretty good position? Yeah, Yes, you are, effectively. But with, with the caveat that, you know, we are also a country that has not seen a recession in, what, like 30 years, right? Yeah. The probability of a recession happening increases effectively, right? I mean, you know, mm. we could have never have a recession, but that that's that'll be like basically telling you the lie. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, again, I think the, the effective is... I think the problem really is that we have a setup which is not very conducive, in my view, for uh, growth. And then it becomes effectively a timing issue, right? I mean, maybe in 10 years, the prices are flat. Maybe in 10 years, the price, the average price goes down by 10%. Maybe in 10 years, you know, the average price goes up by 10%. You know, on a, it's really hard for me to, to believe um, that the odds are really in my favor on a leverage bet to, you know, to make good yeah. money. I'd, I'd rather... You know, if if I really wanted to make ten percent and I just put it in the stock market, right? I mean, if I you know want to make eight, nine, ten percent, put it in the stock market. There's no leverage involved. I'll let that compound, and I'll take the money down the road. That that you know, I'm I'm not talking about, I'm not mm. talking this because you know I'm a stock picker or anything. I'm just saying that you know, this is what I would do. Um, you know, uh, but if you need to have a property for living, or you know, you need to own a property because you want to own the property through like you know for a business that you run, that's a different. I think there are different considerations involved then uh, versus, um, you know, making an investment bet. Fair. Mate, I, and Liam, for the record, I haven't been on my high horse. and I'm not going to get on my high horse, mate, because I'm just not that sort of bloke, as you well know. Um, uh, look, I, I'm a little bit less certain than Doc, but what I will agree with him on is a couple of things. The first is that Buffett has said before, leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke. Now, in a Buffett's way, I think we can, I think we can substitute people or a person for, for a man. Um, Buffett's a little bit older generationally than we are. Um, leverage is the only way a smart person can go broke. And so to that degree, whenever you use leverage, you are always taking a, an, outside, an extra risk, a risk you don't have to take of using your own money, right? And so it's one of those things where, and again, to use it, another Buffett kind of line or quote, you never want to go have to go, have to go back to square one in investing. If you were to take 100 grand out of your portfolio and invest it in a property and that property falls by 10%, well, effectively you've taken that to zero. Now, maybe it grows eventually and maybe it does, right? Um, but you're using leverage. And then what if you lose your job and you've got to pay that off? And what if your tenant leaves or, or you have meaningful impact? You've got to go and put 20, 30, 40 grand into fixing a roof or a hot water system or the footings of the house or something else. There are you are taking a decent amount of additional risk that you frankly don't have to take with a diversified share portfolio for which you're using no leverage at all. So I think that's that's a really really important part. Um, I'm a fan of you know we hear about those old get rich quick schemes. 
I'm a big fan of get rich slowly. And I think if you start young enough, if you're able to save enough and invest at a decent rate, not even a market beating rate, frankly, you could lose to the market over 40 years and still have a lot of money left over. Um, for most people, there's simply no need other than a bit of greed, and a bit of, I wish I could get more money to take risk with leverage. Like it's for most of us, we should just say, you know what, if I can, if I can put aside X dollars a, a month over 40 years and retire with a seven figure amount with no, with not no risk, but no leverage, I, I don't know whether I want to risk that, you know, maybe, maybe you could double it. Maybe you could retire with 3 million rather than one and a half million, just to pick two numbers, right? I don't know what, how old you are and what your numbers are, but let's just use those numbers. Now, on one hand, would you like the extra money? Yeah. But how much risk would you take? You might retire with zero instead. And it's not, it's, not a, it's not an equal bet, right? The difference between zero and one and a half is the same as the difference between one and a half and three, right? It's exactly the same difference, but it's a very, very big difference in terms of your lifestyle. Would you rather a guaranteed one and a half? Now, these are, there's no guarantee, but just for the sake of the, of the rhetorical. Would you rather a guaranteed one and a half or a chance of either zero or three? Now, mathematically, the statisticians would say it's the same number, right? 50% chance of three million is the same as a 100% chance of one and a half million, except we all know in the real world that's absolutely not the case. You simply don't want to run the risk of not having enough money in retirement. So again, there's always risk with investing. I'm not suggesting that shares or any other asset class has zero risk. They absolutely do. But what I am saying is I think generally speaking, you want to be a little bit careful. Now, all that being said, I'm also less negative than Doc on property. I think over the decent amount of time, the, the leverage itself could, I would argue, probably should deliver you a, a decent return. But I mean, Doc's not doing it. I'm not doing it. You know, I have a mortgage on my own home. I don't own an investment property. I've been tempted in the past, Liam, for exactly the reasons you ask. You know, would it be would it be worth trying to find the right property to do X, Y, and Z? Now, the only thing I will add to that is you're not buying, like when we buy stocks, we're not buying the entire market necessarily. When you buy a house, an investment property, you're not necessarily buying the entire market either. So if you can find a really, really well-priced property that has meaningful chance of, of having the odds in your favor because... There's no buyers for it. The seller's desperate. You see something in the potential that other people don't see. Then there is always the chance. You know, some stocks will beat the market average. Some houses will beat the market average as well. I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule that property in total just because the average won't be particularly high. I agree with Doc. I think the problem we have with property is, frankly, there's no more wage increases going through right now. And so, if there's no wage increases going through, how do how do, how does you know how do power prices keep going up? If you can't pay more for the mortgage, you're not earning more money. How do you how do you afford to borrow more? And the answer is you can't. And so that's a really you know that's going to depress the average house prices. If you can see a particular property that for particular reasons looks great, then you might want to reconsider. But generally speaking, I just don't think the leverage is worth it. Just the chance of going back to zero, even if it's a ten percent chance, that means one in ten people who do this goes back to zero. If it's a if it's a two percent chance, one in fifty people goes back to zero. That's probably you know one person from the year you went to school takes on leverage and goes back to zero. The, the odds of that are just too high. You know, the chances are it won't happen to you, but if it does, you're going to retire with nothing. And I just, I just don't think that's worth the risk. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Question, mate, from Stephen, who I think hit me up on Insta. I, I copy these into a, a, a Google document. I think the icons at the top are, are suggesting that it was an Instagram question. So let's, let's assume that. And, you know, I like my Insta questions. I don't know why I like Insta questions. It's irrational. I just kind of like the fact that it's Instagram. Or getting you questions. just feel like a cool kid. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I think I, <laughs> I, I have a suggestion is. for you. I think you need to get onto TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, that's the new thing. Oh, wasn't that a play school? Uh, no. no. TikTok is TikTok. The, like is the new thing. Is the real new thing. By the time I get on TikTok, mate, it won't be the new thing anymore. Put it well, that way. That's why you need to get on this weekend. <laughs> set up it. You know, TMF TikTok. Scott P profile TikTok. on tiktok and you need to ask questions by singing and dancing that's going to be really fun oh dear. 
Even I might join this. Mate, one. Nobody wants to see. <laughs> nobody wants to see me singing and dancing. Um, then again, if I maybe I can be a TikTok influencer, make a fortune. Exactly. Can I retire being a TikTok influencer? Well, maybe. What maybe you I, can. I well, I, I heard Will Smith is. Will Smith is. Yeah, he? you can join Will Smith. Will Smith. Me and Will Smith, we're like that, mate. Yeah. We are. We are. We're almost peas in a pod, William. Exactly. We have the same acting and singing abilities. We, you know, we look the same. We're, well, you know. Yeah, you're just the same. I'm, I'm basically Will Smith. Yeah, exactly. Can we move on? <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's not mention TikTok ever again. Uh, although, if I can make some money doing it, maybe you will. <laughs> Man, that's a massive tangent. Stephen says, hey, mate. This is to me. Big fan of you on the dock. Keep it up. Thank you, Stephen. With the recent news on Imugene, I was wondering if you guys can chat about the role of hype from outside the market, such as media in particular. When can you make it work in your favor? What examples have you seen of it in the past? And then when a penny stock has either rocketed and done well in the medium long term or bottomed out? And in regards to Imugene itself, what should potential buyers be wary of? Cheers and full on Steve. Now, mate, I, I include this question. I have no idea what Imugene is or what it does. Do you have any more information have, about it? You know, I was, I'm, I'm you know, in, uh, after all that praise, I'm really feeling bad to say <laughs> I have, like, absolutely no idea what this Imugene thing but is. What I, but what, so we can't answer the second part of your question, Steve, but our apologies. Uh, what, you know what's, so what I, what I, what I like about our business and, and our, our podcast is we get to say I don't know a lot. I've said before that, some people, I feel sorry for economists sometimes. I mean, they get paid a lot of money, but they don't get to say I don't know. Like they're fundamentally employed to know stuff, whether they do or not. But they don't know stuff. But they say they do anyway. That's, that's what I mean, right? So, <laughs> so it's nice that we don't have to do that, which is, which is lovely. I don't, I don't mean to be critical of those economists. They, they're paid to do a job. They do it to the best of their abilities. But sometimes you just need to say I don't know. So we don't know, Steve, is the answer. But I don't want to ask you about the role of hype from outside the market. You're a big fan, I think, I'm right in saying, of the Gartner model of the hype cycle, at least as a, as a way of thinking about the market. So I just thought, you can, if you want to Google the hype cycle and Gartner, feel free to do that uh, if you're listening at home or on your phone. Uh, but I just thought I'd ask you quickly, man, not, not to do the whole story, because that's probably a half-hour podcast in itself, but the role of hype from outside the market. You've, you're a growth investor. You generally invest in tech. And there's been times I'm sure you've either seen or invested in companies that have just been phenomenally hyped. And then as is quite often the case, and Steve's question, phenomenally <laughs> crash out, sometimes to recover, sometimes not. How do you think about hype when it comes to your investing? Do you avoid it? Do you embrace it? Do you try and look through it? How, how, do, you, how do you deal with hype? This, this is a really interesting question. I, you know, I wish there was a, um, it's another one of those, uh, Steve is basically like, you know, throwing these googlies at us. It's a good one though, right? <laughs> it's a very, really good one. Um, the problem with the hype is like, you know, you know, it is a hype kind of after the fact, right? I mean, you know, when the hype disappears is when you really know the hype, which was hype, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? You don't, you, it's like bubbles. You don't know there's a bubble until it pops. Yeah, until it pops. In hindsight, so, you go, ah, oh, that uh, was a bubble. Was At the time, bu you're never sure whether it's a boom or, or a bubble. Uh, so, I mean, you know, and, and psychology works in weird ways. Like, you know, one mm. of the ones that I remember really um, vividly is uh, the hype around uh, 3D printing, right? Oh, so man. 3D printing was like this idea that, you know, we're going to print our shoes and we're going to print like, you know, everything. <laughs> like 3D printing basically means taking printing and and, and this applying those ideas to a 3D object, which basically means that you can print. And they were, in, and they were like, you know, in the um, from a experimentation point of view, there were people who were like, you know, 3D printing ears. Right, you, know? right. you can print a nose and somebody had some medical issue and you could get a new nose. I think that's you, still being used for medical Some Some of these things are still being used, right? right? So, and if you think... Okay, so go back five or six years ago. Yeah. Everyone was talking about 3D printing. You could print, print a coffee mug. You could, you see, you have a, a, a... It wasn't exactly a traditional printer, like an inkjet printer, but effectively it was a machine that was full of this stuff 
because that's the technical term for yeah. it. <laughs> and and it would kind of squirt out this stuff and then put it in a and it would basically print by by I call it additive printing, right? Additive so printing. It, yeah. it drops it drops little droplets of stuff. And those, it does it in a 3D way so that you basically layer upon layer upon layer from the bottom to the top, you could literally print a coffee mug. Yeah. So and you, and that, that's, I mean, it, it works, right? It's cool. At, and at the time, it was going to take over the world. And then. And then it didn't take over the world, <laughs> right? I mean, it's basically like, you know, one way to think about it is like machining, right? We have machining shops yep. and we can, you know, we have all these things that get built. But this, the idea was that this is going to now become mainstream. With every house is going to have a printer. Every computer, every business. like Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, going yeah. To, everybody's going to print stuff. And it didn't happen. And often what happens is a lot of these things um, get hyped. So like, you know, early in the hype sort of cycle, you know, there'll be a lot of talk, a lot of, you know, um, this is the new big thing. And yeah, then yeah. does it become mainstream or not, right? I mean, is there the very early adopters and, you know, sort of the uh, the transition to sort of the early majority mm. is is really, it, a lot of technology does not see that because A, maybe it was not positioned correctly and um, B, because maybe, you know, the use cases are just not there for, you know, mass scale adoption, right? So even though the tech is real and it was, it was fundamentally real, it's even still being used to some degree, it might well be that just simply the the expectations, the hope built around this, yeah. simply weren't able to be supported by the eventual reality. Yeah, I mean, that's the three D printing comes is is a vivid one. You know, I lost some money on that one, uh, so I remember <laughs> remember it very adequately. And, See it into your brain. So, uh, so yeah, like I mean, the, so trying to ride, I, I think the right thing to do with with tech, especially. Uh, any trend is to actually watch the revenue numbers, right? And we, and, and I think it's it's it, one shouldn't really extrapolate from small revenue numbers because small revenue numbers really, you know, you can get really hyper growth on small revenue numbers, but that does not really mean any sort of uh, large scale adoption, right? right and that's right. the thing. But I, I'll use another interesting example, like you know, so voice. It, Three years back, two and a half, three years back, everybody thought voice. And we were talking about this you know, when we were having coffee. Voice is going to be the new thing, right? So it's now, the smart speakers at home. You say, hey, Google, hey, Siri, hey, Alexa. Yeah. Tell me something. Do something for me. Right. This is an interesting one because in a way, they have inundated people's homes, right? So somebody, you know, typically typical home is going to have one or the other speakers mm. sitting in there, you know, and so that. But the question really is, this is, this is another example where a tech has inundated the marketplace it has been adopted but really for most people it's not doing anything in terms for the companies involved it's not doing anything because it's not really a revenue driver for any one of them right right it's just a technology that they think may in, in some days be, become relevant but right now it's not really because you know nobody's really buying any stuff using you know nobody's saying hey amazon get me hey alexa get me the uh the, the toilet the toilet paper right? right that's not really working that way because right. apparently according to studies less than one percent of people are actually using alexa for buying anything okay. right um so I, I think i think sometimes you know even if the tech takes off it might not actually mean that people are going to make money because uh, you know there's no money being made so i think my whole point is that i think trend investing or secular you know following the secular mm -hmm. tailwinds and things is interesting and i do it but it is you know there are going to be hits and misses in this um you know there's just no way directly to know all right. um, now, fair to say though, you own some stocks. I'm going to speculate. You may you may disagree vehemently. I speculate you own some stocks that are now pretty hyped. In other words, there's a decent amount of long term kind of expectation in the in the price. It isn't necessarily justified by the current business fundamentals. And at some point in the future, some of those stocks may be 3D printing, 
Another time, uh, some of those stocks may actually be effectively, I'll call it the internet, right? Which is a horrible general, but you get the idea, right? The internet yeah. was hyped. It was actually worth a squid. And like it's, the, the, the concept behind that has just absolutely been true. Taken off has been proven out. Yeah. You know, 3D printing wasn't at mass scale. Yeah. How do you think about, so, so, you know, the internet as a stock, let's just, let's just kind of draw that analogy for a second. If you've got some of those, if you're thinking about buying some of those, how do you think through, uh, you know, am I investing, is, is this stock I'm buying 3D printing or is it the internet? Is it, you know, how, how do you, is it voice? Is it what, it, how, do you, how do you make that decision for yourself and think about hype in the context of what you're buying? Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I said, it's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's why the... I'm asking it, dude. That's why I'm not answering it just quietly. <laughs> One of the things, okay. So. I think I look at the trends. I trying to sometimes I just try to apply my own lens to it, and I'd say, okay, I think this works and this does not work for whatever reason. And then there might be reports out there with you know people mm-hmm. making a case, and anybody can make a case about anything, right? So you can make a case saying that voice is the new platform, and you can make a case voice is not the new platform. Mm-hmm. So sometimes um, one there are a couple of things that work. So if you if you think if you think voice is something that is not going to be a new platform, but everybody is still trying to do voice, mm-hmm. then I pick picks and shovels approach, you know, people who are sort of um, helping facilitate the voice revolution are actually likely to do well, at least while voice, the platform is mm. growing, right? So that's one way of okay. participating in in a hype uh, where the money might actually be made somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is to just realize that, you know, if you're going to invest like this, um, you just got to realize that sometimes you're going to just be wrong, right? And it's not going to work That's out. Yeah. And you just have to accept it as a part of your investing methodology that, well, you know, some of these things are not going to work out. Some are going to work out. Hopefully the ones that work out, you're going to pick, um, you know, you might pick a Netscape mm-hmm. and, and at the same time you might pick a Google or you might pick AltaVista and you might pick, for those people who remember. Um, <laughs> You're raging yourself, and, mate. You're raging uh, yourself. Or, or, or maybe you might pick Yahoo versus picking Google, right? right and right. if you had both so Yahoo… You're, so you're thinking search is a thing. Maybe it's hyped, maybe it's not, but I think long term it's going to be a thing. Yeah, a thing. And, and then then you pick one of them right. or, or you pick both effectively. Right. Or so you if pick... you said search is going to be huge, I'm going to buy AltaVista. Yeah. You're, you're left with nothing. Yeah. <laughs> compared to the guy who said, I think search is going to be huge, I'm going to pick Google. Yeah. So the basket approach kind of the makes The basket approach, sense. yeah, it makes sense. And we, do, and we do that even in extreme opportunities, right? I mean, like, you know, we, for example, say that, um, you know, we think independent platforms for mm. like, you know, basically managing funds um, or, or investing uh, is is a thing. And, you know, right now their share of the market is really small. Yep. But if you take a basket approach and own stocks in that basket, we think that you're likely to do well. So, I mean, that basket approach is really useful. Yeah, nice. Um, um, the other thing is just to, you know, the basket approach helps with the fact that some are going to be duds, some are going to be winners. And on average, if the basket wins, then you are going to win. Yeah. It helps with that. The You know, sometimes you're going to apply a lens of your own to see whether you believe so you're going to rule out some tailwinds don't matter and things like that. Mm. I, think that I think that's a really good one, mate. Uh, look, I think there's a couple of things too. I think I think the, the basket approach, both in terms of within a sector, but across sectors is important. If you're going to be a growth investor, then go for it. Um, Steve, I will say, mate, for what it's worth, your specific question I wouldn't ever. It sounds to me like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. Sounds like to me like you're trying to play the the price action here of like you know, hey, this could be huge. Maybe a lot of people will buy it. Maybe I'll buy it before they do and sell it before they do. Timing the market is incredibly difficult. Like if you knew that 3D printing was going to be huge, you buy the shares at a buck a share, sell them a hundred before they crash back to a dollar again. I mean, it seems it's it feels it feels like an attractive way to try and make money, right? And it would be if you could do it reliably. I don't know anyone who can do it reliably, Doc. I don't know if you do, but trying to trying to kind of you know, work out, is it really a thing? Are people really going to buy more shares of this thing? Is it really going to get out of control? And then can I get out before everyone else does? That's really hard, right? So in, in, in one version of the world, you buy it a buck, you sell it a hundred, you make a fortune. 
Another version of the world, you buy it five because you missed the first bit. And then it goes to 30 and you think, well, it'll go higher than that. I'll wait. Then it goes to 20. You go, no, I'll wait till it comes back up. And it goes to three and you say, oh, now I've lost money. I won't do it. And then it goes to one and you go, okay, now I'm down to 80%. I guess I'll sell. You know, and so it's always it's always tempting in hindsight or in, in foresight to say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ride this wave. And I'm going to take advantage of everyone else's, you know, irrational exuberance and then sell before they get depressed. And you can never know what price to buy and sell at. And that's, you know, again, in hindsight, it's really, really seems obvious. And if you're a smart person, you look forward and you go, I could possibly do that. I could, I could, I could find the next one of these. And maybe you can, and maybe you make a fortune. Or maybe you lose a fortune because you either sell out too early, you miss the opportunities, you don't invest in stuff that actually does go up <laughs> more slow and steady. Um, so man, I get I get the approach, I get the interest, I get the thought. If you could do it, you absolutely should do it. I don't reckon you can because I don't reckon anyone else can. So I, I think there are better ways, a bit like property investing, right? Is, is it possible to make money that way? Yeah. Are there better ways to get rich slowly? I reckon there probably are. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I had a question from Mitch who says, uh, long time listener, great podcast. Thank you, Mitch. Very kind of you to say nice things about us, even though we never even intimate that we want you to say nice things. We would happily answer your question if you said, well, if you didn't say nice things about us, I'm sure we'd, well. We never asked. I mean, you probably get your question answered, but if you're a betting man, you'd probably want to put the odds in your favor and maybe say some nice things, possibly. Yeah, Just but hypothetically. We, but, but we never ask people to we say never, ever, no. never. Never, we're not never demand- even intimate it. We're, we're, not, we're not demanding There's people. definitely no selection risk here about uh, not saying nice things. Anyway, Mitch says, long-time listener, great podcast. Quick question. Do super funds provide you a list of the companies they are investing in? All I can find is the breakdown of Aussie and international equities, cash allocations, etc. Cheers. Hashtag full on. Love that, Mitch. Thank you for the hashtag. Doc, the answer is no. No. Very simply. Um, super funds don't because they're not obliged to. And a little bit like... Transparency is a funny thing when it comes to funds, right? Like on one hand, I would applaud a fund who said, hey, this is everything we buy, everything we invest in, here's what you should buy too. On the other hand, um, as again, I'll quote Buffett again, as Buffett does, he's got special dispensation to wait and not disclose his purchases because if he's building a position, most large funds, you can't buy everything all at once, right? You can't say, I'm going to put 2% of my billion dollar fund in Woolworth shares and just buy them today and then tell the market tomorrow. You just... They're not available. You destroy the price. The price would jump massively because that much volume all at once would just mess with the price. So you you build a position really slowly. The pressure and the requirement to then disclose that at some point means you get people copycatting or trying to you know get in ahead of you or whatever. So generally speaking, I love transparency, but I also realize the the simple kind of commercial reality, business reality of not having to disclose more than you otherwise would want to. It's a really difficult thing, but they don't have to, and so they don't. Um, I think I'm generally speaking in favor of it. Doc, do you have a particular, would you rather more disclosure or less? Well, I think, you know, it's again, some of it is also proprietary, right? I mean, yeah. you know, different funds will have different holdings and, you know, it's a little bit of a competitive competition as well in that sense, right? I mean, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I think maybe disclosing some positions or so that people get a flavor of what's being yeah, held. Maybe often that, funds disclose like a top five or top 10. Well, that, which makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think, one should be happy with that. As long, I mean, as long as there's a track record or information that point. you can follow, yeah. um, that, you know, this fund is, this is what is this fund, and this is the approach of this fund, and this yeah. is what this fund has delivered over the past three, five, ten years. Yeah. Um, I think, no, that's pretty good. You know what's funny about that too, mate, is the disclosure kind of, it's one of those funny things. If you So if, you're, if I was investing in a fund, I would be doing it because I thought that fund could beat the market, right? That's why I would do it. If they disclose the holdings, I look at those and go, oh, the fund's lost it. I'm going to sell the shares or, or, or you know, exit the fund. 
I'm kind of overlaying my own stock picking on the fun stock picking. And yeah. look, I don't. I mean, I, I personally think I, I. I mean, you and I are both doing a decent job of beating the market currently. So maybe we have some ability to bring to bear here. Um, and so maybe that would make sense for you and I to do. But if I wasn't in the game particularly. Um, and I said, hey, uh, look, DocFund.com has delivered me 30% this year. Oh, but I just noticed he's added Woolworths to his portfolio. I think Woolworths are terrible. So I'm going to exit that fund because he's made a bad investment decision. There's every chance that if if your success is ongoing and, and reliable, then me trying to second guess your purchases is probably not, not really particularly healthy. So on one level, if you like what they're buying, maybe buy units in the fund or if you like their performance. If you don't like it, don't own it. But I think it maybe actually tempts people to make some secondary or tertiary kind of decisions, which probably aren't in their long-term best interest, I'd, I'd speculate. That's a very, really good point, actually, the human angle. My question from Nick. Nick, this one's for you, Doc. I think it's a, hopefully a relatively simple question, but it's a good one. And it's one I thought we'd ask on air because it helps other people who might be in the same situation. Nick says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Good man, Nick. Listen to it every Friday on the way back from work. Hopefully you're also listening to this on a Sunday, mate, or maybe you're doubling up your Friday listens. Hopefully it's a long drive back. Well, not for you, but for us. Uh, hopefully you get to listen to both the podcasts this week. My question is about US stocks. I previously purchased a stock which is about to be bought out. I'm wondering if I need to do anything for this transaction to occur. That is, do I need to conduct a transaction and thus brokerage? I have an account with NabTrade and hold shares in Intel which pay a quarterly dividend, which is paid into this account. Thanks and full on. So, mate, in Australia, I know the answer to this. If you if your company is compulsorily acquired, your purchase is automatically, your shares are automatically sold and the purchase is settled to your general regular transaction account, or at worst, you get sent a check if they don't have those details. What about the US? What happens there? Uh, it's it's pretty similar. I mean, if, you, uh, if the com- company is acquired and they're paying in cash, then the cash should land in your uh, brokerage account. Mm-hmm. If it's a, you know, a, a part cash, part stock deal, then the other stock and some cash is going to land in your brokerage account i mean um and, and and most often i mean the acquisition if an acquisition is guaranteed to go through the share price will be trading pretty close to yeah. the exit price or the purchase price and one could sell out early mm-hmm. if they wanted to get hold of the cash before the transaction actually officially closed uh, but if if your goal is to basically uh, avoid the transaction cost and the best thing is to just sit that's that's yep. I think. you get settled directly yeah, yeah. I, I actually agree with you doc i think one of the things we need to be look we don't want anyone to be overactive as investors, so by all means, just wait for the cash to arrive if you want to. By the same token, as stocks, as if the shares, the share price is roughly the buyout price now, waiting for the sake of waiting for it to be automatically happen, you're kind of missing the chance of investing that cash in something else you feel better about. I mean, in theory, the price is almost maximized right now. You could wait three months and get the money, and maybe at that time, the share price goes up 1.5% because the market's pretty efficient, the time value of money. We're not going to get into it now, but effectively, it's worth more uh, now than then, so you kind of want the money earlier. Um, it's probably a very, very slight discount. Generally speaking, for me, particularly in the US where there's... Oh, actually, NabTrade's still got brokerage, so maybe it's a bit different. But if there was no brokerage at all, the brokerage is reasonably small, you're kind of better off, I think, most of the time if you're getting roughly the buyout price, take the money now and reinvest that money in your next best idea rather than waiting. Uh, but it's it's a pretty much much of a muchness. If you if you don't need the money, you've got no great new ideas, uh, by all means, let it settle by itself. Mate, a question from... Guess where? Tell me. Instagram. Another install. <laughs> this one's from Matt. Now, Matt comes from uh, an area you're familiar with. He says he's in Vancouver. Now, tell me this is one of your family sending us questions, Doc. Uh, not me. My families don't even, you know, this is the west coast of Canada. Oh. I have family in the east of Canada. That's like oh, several right. hours of flight. Fair enough. Okay. I'll, I'll... Could be my long-lost brother. <laughs> Could be a long-lost <laughs> brother who happens to be in Vancouver. Yeah. Matt says, hey, guys, just new to the podcast and wanted to say thank you for the education you are providing to your listeners. That's very kind. 
if you're only new to the podcast, you have, probably haven't realized that we're really not worth listening to yet. So please feel free to continue that misunderstanding. <laughs> please continue listening. Tell your friends, even in Vancouver. There are people in Vancouver who need a little bit of Australian foolishness in their lives, aren't they, Doc? I am just stoked that the people in Vancouver <laughs> and in Hungary listening to us. I just think I want to be number three in Vancouver as well. Yeah, why not? Oh, right number one in Vancouver. Number one in Vancouver. Number one in Vancouver. With a, Matt, you've got a job to do, mate. You've got a job to Don't do. let Doc down. He needs to be number one in Vancouver. But do it for his family in Canada, if nothing else, because, you know, <laughs> he wants to be able to say, look at my podcast, look how well I'm doing. Exactly. So don't, don't, don't keep it to yourself. Matt, Matt friends. it's on you now. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, Matt, but uh, just quietly, we may, may or may not answer your next question if we're not number one. So just, just take that into account. Uh, he says, I'm 27 and living in Vancouver, as I mentioned, paying off my mortgage back home in Adelaide with a tenant helping with the costs. And I own a few shares. If I can be cheeky and ask two questions mm-hmm. to get your expert thoughts, that would be fantastic. Mate, I haven't said this for a very long time, Doc, and I should make a habit of saying this every podcast. We do have a, a voiceover disclaimer, but I will say as we do answer your questions, these are only and always general advice. So while we'll, we'll, we always put our best efforts into answering your questions as well as we possibly can, um, both the, the rules and frankly the right uh, provision of finance, of finance advice would be to say, look, we can only give general advice on this podcast as every week. Um, again, our, our, our pre-recorded voiceover says that, but just please keep that in mind as we talk about this stuff. We give our best view of these things, but personal advice is always more useful for you individually if you need specific advice as how our advice might meet your circumstances. So bit of bit of a bit of an ASIC pleasing disclaimer out of the way. Let's get into Matt's two questions. He says, you've probably covered this, but I own TPG shares. And I'm wondering if is it worth holding on to? Pretty straight up and down question, Doc. What do you say? Buy, sell, or hold TPG? So what's here's the thing. I don't know what's going. I have forgotten what's going on now <laughs> with the TPG Vodafone. Uh, yeah, so merger. TPG. Well, they're in the middle of a, a a court case still on underway to see whether or not they're allowed to merge with Vodafone. The original rule from the regulator, I'm pretty sure, was that they couldn't do it, but they're trying to have that decision overturned. So mm. shares currently at six dollars sixty three as we record this. They've been higher. They've been lower. What do you say, mate? Should you own or hold or buy, sell shares in TPG? For the record, just to give you some context, P is currently 16 times earnings. This is a $6 billion business. What do you say, mate? you want to buy it? you want to sell it? Or should we hang well, on? Like, it's a telco at 16 times earnings. I mean, it had a, a bulk of its growth days are behind it in many ways, right? I mean, it's 16 times earnings. I'm guessing Telstra is like 14 times earnings. I mean, you know, and these earnings are going to be growing very slowly. I don't know. Like, I mean, that sounds uh, on the high side um, to me. I mean, it may not be high side, but, you know, this is more up your alley. Why are you asking me this question? This, because this I get company, to ask you all the hard questions. This, this company was on your service. <laughs> you should answer this question. It was on our service. So I will I will add my thoughts. Um, we recommend a member sell to TPG uh, back at the takeover time. Um, it's a funny situation. They've basically ruled themselves out of the 5G race, and that concerns me somewhat. So I was... I, I didn't want to own... So the reason we sold was in part because we didn't want to own shares in a merged TPG and Vodafone. Frankly, we owned TPG because it was a price fighter, disruptive brand, taking market share from the incumbents and doing really, really well. David Teo, the CEO, one of the best CEOs in the country, in my view, helps buy a lot of tailwinds in the sector, by the way. So I also like Alan Joyce as a, as a, as a CEO who's not doing anywhere near as well as TPG because it's a very tough industry. So uh, it's easy to be a, just look good in, a, in an industry with growth. That being said, I like David Teo. I like the way he runs TPG. Um, I, I like the business, but I didn't love the fact that as part of Vodafone TPG, it'd be kind of be, it would become another also ran right. It'd become a third incumbent rather than what otherwise is a fourth price fighter. Now, 
at some point, TPG said, look, we don't want to do that game anymore. Maybe the growth is over. Maybe the industry is consolidating. Maybe we want to be part of a bigger business. And they were going to sell that business. And that was completely fine. So we were happy to take our money off the table. That still remains my view. Frankly, I like TPG separately as a standalone company more than I like it as part of Vodafone. So on one on one kind of reading of this, I wouldn't mind if the ACCC said no. And if I got to keep TPG at a not too challenging price, if it was going to continue to be a price fighter and take market share. The questions really are because it's effectively seeded 5G and said, look, we're going to use Huawei. You guys won't let us use Huawei. This is to the government. You guys won't let us use Huawei. So I guess we're out of this. We can't do anything anymore with this space. That's tough. And I think that's where that's where it gets really challenging for, for TPG is, you know, can they grow post this? I don't think I'd hold the shares at the current time. I don't, I said, I don't love it if it becomes part of the uh, part of a a bigger business and I don't love it without 5G exposure. So if they're genuine about the fact that 5G won't go ahead if they don't merge, TPG kind of has one hand tied behind its back. Its NBN margins are pretty low um, as everyone's NBN margins are and if it's not going to get huge growth in mobile, I don't really know what TPG looks like in that environment. So I think at the current price, I'd probably happily sell my shares. I would reevaluate if the t- if the merger is, is is voted down or or, or um, knocked down by the courts and they go back into a 5G market. I wouldn't be averse to buying them at some point, depending on the price and the prospects. But right now, I think your money is probably better off spent somewhere else. Doc, second question. You can answer this one. Should I consider selling all my shares and putting it into an ETF to get some more diversity? Now, he's currently got, he tells us he's got four different companies. And so, again, we can't give specific advice. So I won't make it reference to those particular four companies. But if you only had four companies, Doc, should you sell them all and buy an ETF for the purpose of diversity? He says, the only one I'm really up with is one company. Uh, and after your banking podcast, it made me reconsider one of the other companies I own. So he's down on three, he's up on one. He's saying, well, I've got four. Should I sell them all? and buy an ETF instead to maximize the diversification of his portfolio. He says, I really appreciate your thoughts and will always consult my financial advisor before making decisions. Ha ha, good man, Matt, we like that. That keeps us happy, keeps ASIC happy, and keeps us, frankly, out of trouble. So we're happy with that. Uh, I'm glad that message has got through. Doc, four stocks, if you're going to not own any more, and you're, frankly, a bit concerned about at least one of them in your portfolio, should you just sell them and buy an ETF? Yeah, Matt, that's a really good question. I mean, in general, for is a small number to get diversification, right? It's it's hard to get diversification with four. Now, would I sell it? I mean, that depends on a number of things. If I'm going to be adding money and mm-hmm. I'm going to be buying stuff, then I could actually, keep, assuming that I'm happy with those companies that I own, I could continue owning them and add other companies to bring uh, diversification, right? Yep. So if, yep. if I was going to bring diversification via the addition of additional funds, um, then I could own individual stocks and hopefully get that number up to somewhere around 15 to 20. Um, and then, you know, and, and 15 to 20, you, know, you need to make sure that you also own some diversification in terms of um, the, uh, right. you know, the industries. Not and just so 15 on. bank stocks. 15, 15 bank stocks won't do it. <laughs> yeah, or 15, yeah. you know, five bank stocks and 10 retailers won't do it. Um, <laughs> so it, that's one approach. Um, if you're not going to be adding any money, if someone is not adding any money, then you know I think an ETF sounds like a really good idea because yep. you know if you have limited funds, um, ETF really is a nice way to diversify. Again, you need to look at which ETF you're getting. You don't want to get an ETF that you know on you know is cloaked as diversification, but is actually not diversification. Um, so you want an ETF that gives you broad diversification of some sense. Yep. Um, then then that would be a reasonable thing to do, in my opinion. Um, uh, without knowing again the specifics, but yeah, that's I think that to me that's what I think I would do 
if I had only four stocks, it, I, I might have, a, if I was not adding any funds, then I would, I would probably go down the ETF route. Nice. I think that's a perfect answer, mate. I completely agree. I, even if you're going to add, if you're going to add funds slowly, I think the risk you still run as an investor, if you just knew what investing is, if you've only got four stocks, maybe you're already buying a fifth in a month's time and another one in six months' time, you're spending a lot of time being undiversified. And if that as an investor is going to freak you out, like if we have a big market crash or, or a particular industry struggles and you kind of go, oh man, that's down 30%, I should never have done this investing thing, I'm getting out. You haven't got enough diversification yet to take advantage of that. Um, so look, from a, from a pure investing returns perspective, Doc is absolutely right. You're going to add regularly and get to 15 odd stocks over time. From an investing diversification perspective, perfectly fine if you can be rational on the way through. If you can't be, and, and frankly, I don't say this is a criticism because most people can't <laughs> deal with the volatility in the short and medium term, then even even whatever time it takes you to get to 15 may still be too long if you can't kind of deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as the, as the Bard said. Um, you want to probably be an ETF just to simply add to that. Maybe even go to an ETF and then start adding individual stocks back again might be another way you can do that. Now, be careful of trading costs, be careful of tax implications. Um, but generally speaking, I think if you can't get to 15 in a reasonably short amount of time, I think I'd probably be inclined to go ETF as the base, add individual stocks, and then at some point, frankly, you can then sell the ETF when you get enough stocks and then reinvest that in individual companies if you want to do that. Um, but I think for most people, having broad diversification as a starting point and then adding, if you can't get to 15 reasonably quickly, is probably not a bad idea. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, my question from Dion Smith. And Dion says, hey, guys, have a question for the podcast. Don't mind if you mention my name, but don't mention my surname. Didn't you just do that? Sorry. Oh, dear. No, I'm kidding. I, I did pre-read that question. It's not Dion Smith. It is Dion, but it's not Dion Smith. Uh, sorry, that was a bit of, bit of comedic value. See? We bring the comedy, Doc. Well, I'm, I think we should get paid for this. <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm paid exactly what I'm worth on this podcast, just quietly. Exactly nothing. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I would not sign up to that statement. I want to get paid. <laughs> I'm all about getting paid. Mate, you're not bringing the jokes. It's all about the jokes. Oh, come on. We're recording this podcast, by the way, a bit of inside goss, in the same studio as Moon Man is the morning, in the morning. Lawrence Mooney, the great Moon Man. We're recording in his studio today, so I'm... I won't I'm say famous. I'm, I won't say I'm channeling some Lawrence Mooney, because that would be a dramatic insult to me. <laughs> <laughs> if I said I was as funny as him, or at least channeling him, so I'm not doing any of the sort. I'm just a pale, pale, pale imitation. However, Dion Smith, thank you for the, thank you for the question. He says, "Thanks for the show. Always look forward to it." My question is in regards to the tech darlings, such as Facebook, Google, and Amazon. I know you guys enjoy some casual Apple versus Google banter, something like that. However, Doc appears to have some serious concerns about data misuse and collection. Has this ever factored into his decision to invest in Apple over Google? Do either of you believe there is any real threat to the big tech giants being broken up? The purpose of my question is after reading a great book called Zucked, that's with a Z, Zucked, I've been thinking more and more about how personal data is used by these companies, especially the likes of Facebook, which relies on us, the product, to fuel advertising revenue. Now, I did mention to our team during the week that uh, I just said there was a, I posted the, um, the fact there might be an argument about it, and uh, and I told the guys to listen in. I wouldn't I wouldn't spoil it, but this is the question. I'm expecting a little bit of fireworks. Let's just see how we go, mate. 
I, I have a suspicion you might have a view on data collection and privacy. Am I, am I close to the mark here? <laughs> no, I, well, my views are well known. <laughs> so, Dion, mate, actually, I'm going to talk about one thing. I think one of the brilliant things of this question is the last part. Does it give you a chance to rant? No, not the okay. last part. I think okay. this is, this is, this is what, what I mean. Privacy is a slow burn, <laughs> right? And um, if, you, if, if, if I look at Dion's last part of the comment, it says, you know, purpose of question is to ask, is, yep. you know, the question arises after he has read a book. He is now thinking more about his privacy and he's thinking about the data that's being collected, yes. right? So privacy, I think, is, um, is something that people have not thought about mm. very carefully. And even people, I think a lot of people think that, ah, oh, it's okay to give my data. Um, and, you know, the way I, I sort of phrase that is a lot of people think, well, oh, the government, big government, they're listening in, you know, how would... One way to think about this is how would people feel if the Australian government basically said, by law, we're going to record everything that's happening in your house. We're going to record everything that you do. And that's okay because we're the government, right? Yep. And if we're not okay with the the government being big brother, why are we okay with some company or third party being the big brother? I think, so, I mean, that's really pushing it to the extreme, I, I know. but But I think... Privacy is a, is an important subject, and I think for different people, different uh, privacy would mean different things. Yeah. But I think overall, privacy as a as a brand or privacy as something that's meaningfully important has not received uh, much attention, but mm. it has started to receive attention. And you know, I, I like to call this. Like, there's a usually what I call about a five to seven year lag between a topic that receives academic interest to a topic that actually becomes mainstream. Now, not all topics become mainstream, but you know, people started talking about privacy about 2011, 2012. When you say people... When I, th- when I say people, is I mean academics here. Right. And it really became an, a very important topic in, in research and academia. Mm-hmm. And, and I think from there, it has slowly started seeping in. Um, so... So I do think privacy is important, um, and and you know that's one of the reasons why I don't have a position in Google. Um, right. uh, there's, there are many other reasons. I mean, one very simple reason is historically, you know, Google might appear to be the business that has you know is more capital light and therefore you know has got all these network effects and therefore should be a better investment. But historically, if you look at last five years or you look at last ten years, um, Apple has actually been the better investment to own. Uh, so you know sometimes you know stereotypical ways of investing actually don't help you get better returns, you know, taking a alternative viewpoint helps because maybe you got the stock for a cheaper price. Um, so that that's, the re, you know, one of the reasons. The other reason I don't own Google is I think um, in many ways, Google is a one-trick pony, right? I mean, it's a one-trick pony because it's got search and it's got advertising and everything re- revolves around that. And if, um, if something is to happen to that, I think that company is actually, I mean, it, it, it's it's a company that can become fragile very quickly. So you know your greatest strength can become your greatest weakness. Um, that all that aside, I think um, privacy is is becoming important. So that's one of the reasons I, I I prefer Apple, which has a very different way of approaching privacy. It doesn't sell your data because it doesn't need to, because that's not its business model. And um, with respect to owning big tech, I mean, as an investment, you if you own big tech, you don't need to own all of the big tech. Mm. To me, um, of the lot, I think Facebook is the most fragile of the lot. Largely, not because, you know, here's the thing, right? You know, you can own 1.6 billion people, but people are very very fickle-minded, right? I mean, a lot of people use uh, WhatsApp 
not because they want to use WhatsApp, but because WhatsApp is free, right? <laughs> so if something else shows up that's free, <laughs> that provides a better uh, experience or an equivalent experience for whatever reason is, there's you know, every reason people might move to it. And apps, I think, are disruptable uh, more easily than other forms of ecosystems. I find Facebook to be the most fragile of the lot. Of mm. course, if it's the fragile of the lot, uh, because it does not control any uh, operating system. It does not control the iOS. It does not control uh, Android. Right. Uh, it doesn't have optionality it, in, in that sense, right? And therefore, if new platforms emerge, they are most at risk of being disrupted. Mm. Um, one could say that the current price of the stock actually accounts for that because for the growth that they have, the, the, you know, you're paying basically 20 times earnings for the kind of growth that they're delivering. Uh, today. So maybe that's discounted for. So I mean, you know, if you want a higher risk, uh, lower price to earnings stock, then uh, Facebook is for you um, in, in that sense, right? Um, yeah. So I mean, in terms of big tech being uh, broken up, mm. it's possible. Will it happen? Uh, my bet would be no. But in in the past too, I mean, if uh, if big tech is broken up, it's not necessarily a bad thing because maybe there's value in some of parts. It's right, not right. being realized, actually. So if you break up Amazon and say Amazon Web Service is going to be different from uh, Amazon Online, you might actually find that you, you land up with more value than, uh, than currently because, you know, uh, the, you know, Amazon Web Service as a, great, is, as a business is probably being overshadowed by a low-margin uh, online retail business. Right. Um, it's so, very hard for the market to adequately price. It shouldn't be, right? Like the market's supposed to be pretty clever. But if you've got two very, very different businesses, a, a high-margin cloud storage, cloud computing business, and a low-margin retail e-commerce business stuck together, the market should be clever enough to work that out. But generally speaking, it isn't. And we've seen examples before where when those sorts of businesses are split up, the sum of the parts is stupidly, from a market perspective, but also very realy, which is not really the way you put it, um, it, it does actually end up getting re-rated, right? Yeah, I, I think so. So, I mean, we have seen this in the past happen with um, eBay and PayPal, right? right. So, um, so that I think I think being broken up may not necessarily be a bad thing. Actually, in, in some cases, it actually might be a good thing. And you can make individual cases of them. So, you know, being broken up is bad for Facebook. It's probably bad for Apple. Um, mm. It's probably actually bad for Google, but it's not bad for Amazon. Mm. <laughs> of the lot, Amazon is actually better. Yeah. <laughs> the, the best, the best company is Amazon. Should just actually uh, by itself spin off those companies, saying, "Okay, you know, before you guys talk about this, I'm going to just spin off these things, yeah. and and I'm going to be fine um, because they have less in, in, interdependence because they've got two very different types of businesses that they've got uh, mm. together. Mm. Um, so I, I think there are different cases to be made. Um, yeah, that's my, you know, it's not very fiery, I think. It's not very fiery. I, I have to say, so I, I replied to Dion actually on Instagram and said, great question on the list. He said, cheers, I'm looking forward to the episode. I said, you just want Doc and I to argue, right? He said, yeah, that is 100% the primary goal of this question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it failed on the goal, huh? Well, I'm, I'm going to have, a, I'm gonna have a, a little bit of a go. Um, uh, look, I, you know what I think is interesting? I think, I think privacy is a, well, so kind of, privacy is a funny thing. I remember way back in the day, mate, I don't think you were in Australia then. You wouldn't have been, actually. It was in the 80s. Bob Hawke, and I think Paul Keating is his treasurer, introduced, do you remember the Australia card? Have you heard about the Australia card? No, I haven't. So this was back in the day when they wanted to have a national identity card. We all said, no way in hell are we going to do that. And as you rightly point out, you fast forward 30 years and we're all giving all of our personal information to to various large and small tech companies in different contexts, right? Whether that's, as you say, the in-home voice recording stuff, whether it's uh, letting Google read our email, there's, there's a, you know, in a million different ways. 
<clears throat> excuse me, we are, we are, you know, loyalty cards, credit cards. Funnily enough, while we said we wouldn't want the government to have it, we were more than happy for tech companies to have it. Now, on the way through, by the way, there was a massive issue about, remember Gmail back in the day when they could read in air quotes our emails and that was a big deal? We kind of all got over that pretty quickly. And I think that's, so I have a slightly different take on privacy to you, which is, which is largely just a, just a personal preference and a personal view. I don't have a, you know, I, I don't, we'll see who's right or wrong. It may well be you, it may well be me. Um, I think to my mind, I'm only worried about my own privacy to the extent it can actually identify me to an individual person. I don't really care what a computer knows about me because the computer is, you know, if it serves me better ads or tells me where to go in the morning or whatever, um, the fact that it knows about me as an individual doesn't matter at all to me until that information is misused in some way that is personally identifiable and used against me. And I think to my mind, now that may happen, right? And, and you may in five years time say, see, I told you that was going to happen. And that may well be true. To my mind, I don't really care that a computer tracks me. If it improves my online experience, I'm actually really happy with that. Now, maybe that makes me an idiot in hindsight, but I'm really happy with that. When it, The issue I would have is if it became a question of how I was able to access particular services or, or goods to the extent that which that was actually made public about me or in some other way used uh, directly to identify me or to, to, to share my information with some person, an individual real person, who could use it against me or somehow use it to judge me. So, and that may happen, by the way, but that's my, that's why I'm not too worried about the privacy concerns. I will echo your thoughts, mate, about being broken up. I think it's very, very hard for the big tech companies to be broken up. It's not impossible. It would be probably counterproductive. I can see areas. So, for example, Facebook, Instagram, and is WhatsApp part of the Facebook hmm. thing too? So, you can imagine, you know, at some point, someone might say they own too much social, let's break them up. That'd be painful to do, but not impossible. You can simply replicate the user database and, and separate them out. Um, I say that, you know, there's much more tech goes behind it, but conceptually, you can think about that way. Um, I can imagine, I've said to you before, Doc, I know you don't necessarily agree, but I can imagine um, the App Store owners, Google and, and Apple, being forced to divest themselves or open themselves up to that. And there's reasons technically why that wouldn't be ideal as a user experience, but I can imagine someone complaining about the monopoly power of these guys. If I have an Android phone, I've really only got one App Store I can use. If I've got an Apple phone, I've only got one App Store I can use. At some point, a government body may consider that a monopoly power. The Amazon story, I don't really even think, I don't think it's a very good argument at all to break up AWS and, and, and the e-commerce business as long as they're not being used to be anti-competitive. I don't really see evidence that they are. Um, in some cases, some people have said Amazon shouldn't be allowed to compete as a product provider. So, you know, the whole home brand thing, you know, if Woolly sees tomato sauce selling well, they want their own version of it so they can make some sales. Amazon does the same and often puts the product originators out of business. I can imagine a rule or a law that said they couldn't provide Amazon branded or home branded products in, in that sort of marketplace. So I can see arguments and, you know, where you might want to break these guys up or restrict them somehow. And I can see how it might happen. I'm with Doc though. I don't think it's particularly useful. Um, I don't think it'd be a bad thing, by the way. I think, again, as Doc said, those businesses are probably worth more separate than together, but I don't really see a big reason or, or argument for it to happen. Um, I, I think it's far more likely we end up with some government mandated rules about data collection and distribution, um, the way it can be used. I think that's probably much more likely. Do you want to have a, a, a go back, Matt, or are you you're done on that one? Um, no, as I, as I rejoined, I think the only thing I'll say is that, you know, I hate the idea of um, data peddling companies owning personal data largely because I think as they get into things like banking or things like healthcare, I think it gets more complicated because, yeah. um, you know, and I think regulation is not the answer because these are very difficult things to regulate. So my preference is that they don't own the data at all and they don't, 
actually, well, well, well my preference, I solved that problem by not using their services. So, um, uh, so those who don't know, Doc uses Bing, which for the life of me, that's got to be that's a punishment worse than death. I, I don't know how much you have well, to hate about your privacy to use Bing. But. You know, but if I'm valuing my privacy <laughs> enough that I, I use know, Bing, I, uh, I use Bing, and I use I begrudgingly use some Google products, but I, I you know, but I. I yeah. actively don't use Google products for that reason or any other company that peddles, I mean, data. Very fair, very fair. Uh, whereas I'm, I'm completely all in on Google. I, you know, if, if Google is the Borg, then they'll take me first and I reckon that's just less resistance I have to worry about. So I reckon my, my life's probably better as a result, but we'll see. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Uh, mate, next question. And it comes from... Anthony, Anthony says, hey, Scott, firstly, love the podcast and what you two gems are doing for the Oz investment community. How nice is that? I'm a gem. Well, both of us, apparently. Which I'm, one just thinking, be? I'm just thinking about a gem. Which like, one do you want to be? The big gem. You want to be a diamond? <laughs> I'll, I'll just Maybe the... I'm garnet or topaz. Uh, whatever. Like, I'll just take whatever <laughs> <Aquamarine>. gem. <laughs> Aquamarine. <laughs> this is Thank awesome. You, Thank you. He says, <laughs> I'm 32, and I'm not going to use numbers, mate. Um, oh, maybe I will. I'm 32 and have a six-figure investment across ASX shares and investment funds. I contribute six grand per annum across various DRP programs. DRP is Dividend Reinvestment Plan. In other words, when the dividends are paid, they get reinvested directly. My question is, what more could I be doing, which I love, to ensure long-term wealth for me and my family? Anton, you can't provide personal advice and all comments general in nature. Thank you. Keep up the good work. You guys have been fundamental in putting me in the position I'm in today. Anthony, you have absolutely made my day. I'm sure Doc's day. Um, again, hearing that we're helping people is just, yeah, does, does all the good things. So, mate, really appreciate that. Um, Doc, six-figure sum, 32, six grand a year. What more could or should Anthony be doing? Well, I think this is this is brilliant. First of all, you're 32. You've got six figures already in the bank, in a way, uh, or in, good, huh? in, in the stock. Investing in better, yeah. This is, not in, in the in, bank, in, mate. You get nothing for that. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 don't put it in the bank. Uh, but in, in the stock market, yep. um, I guess the only thing I'd suggest is, you know, if you're if you're um, investing only in the ASX, maybe consider, you know, having ETF exposure internationally. Good advice. That gives you more diversification. Um, but yeah, like, you know, basically continue doing this. This is this is brilliant. I'm going to ask uh, you, mate, you said ETF exposure internationally. Are you specifically saying don't invest in shares directly in overseas markets? Um, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, I mean, given, given that he is putting, um, you know, given that he didn't say how much he is uh, putting forward Every year, yep. in addition, he said he's he's putting like some amount via DRPs, which yes, which, yes, I, yes. which basically means and and you know because of the franking and uh, the way it works here, yeah, I think it's it's advantageous to actually do the DRP probably here, um, then on on foreign shares. So that's why, I did. Yep. like, if if you have a, if you have a decent amount of money available for investing internationally, then I would definitely recommend uh, mm. recommend. But I'd say that that's a good thing to do, but if you don't have uh, because they you know there are costs for setting up the account and and things like that, or you know, so if you don't have that, then um, then just using ETFs, which provide exposure to international uh, markets, cool. is yep. is a is a great way because you can just do that right here on the, on 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 the ASX. So, uh, but yeah, by all means, if you want to do international investing, definitely, uh, you know, uh, share look at share advisors, advisors U.S. side of the scorecard. Hi-hi. You could uh, you could use that as as, as a reference. Um, but otherwise, ETFs would be. That's the only thing I can say. Otherwise, yep. just continue doing what you're doing. This is brilliant. 
Well, I like your idea of investing internationally. The only thing, look, this is the obvious answer, Anthony. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it at you, mate, just because it's, it's worth it. The, the single best thing any of us can do to build our investment futures is actually to save more. It's far more important than actually trying to invest better, um, which sounds counterproductive. But um, I mean, look, when you get when you get to sixty and you've got a million dollars in the bank, then investing better makes a bigger difference because the, the value of the compounding is just simply worth more than whatever you could invest. But for the first twenty or thirty years of your investment career, the amount you save is far, far, far more important than the amount you earn on that money, um, which again, for, for two investment advisors, sounds like a strange bit of advice to give. We're not saying don't invest well, we're saying invest as well as you can. Um, but but frankly, with a six-figure sum, you know, if you could put aside another two or three or four grand a year somehow, then that's two or three or four percent permanent return you're getting without having to try hard. And it's very hard to beat the market by two, three or four percent regularly. Um, so if you can if you can put aside some extra cash, that's the very best thing you can do. Now, easy for me to say, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know how much money you have or how much you earn or how much you are spending. Um, and so it's a, it's a bit of a boilerplate answer, but it really genuine for everybody listening. The single biggest thing you can do for your investing, again, unless you already you know, have a seven-figure sum or a large six-figure sum and you're you know, 58, the, the single best thing you can do for your investing is not actually trying to work out how to invest, but work out how to save more. That's going to be far, far more useful. By the way, if no other reason, then it's extra return, but it's also risk-free, right? Any money you can save, it's, it's tax-free and it's risk-free compared to a return you try and get in the market where markets can be volatile. So I think that's that's the only advice I give you, which is kind of a bit, you know, feels a bit uh, obvious, um, but I really want to just emphasize when we think about investing well, we think about the return we're getting, think about the cash you're saving as well. I just heard that the uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia is coming looking for you. <laughs> Because you're telling people to save, not spend. You think he wants to give me his job? Oh, that might be. Well, I'm not sure whether he's a better. Uh, you know whether you're oh, gonna be careful. better. Oh, careful! Be nice. <laughs> yeah, you, Bloody you, hell. You, you, both of you might take the rates <laughs> back to zero. So, <laughs> for all I know, no, 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 no rates, rates have gone up under me. Don't worry about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Then, then you got you got the job. <laughs> so, but, 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 yeah. You I can mean, call me governor from now on. Yeah, I'm gonna call you governor. Deal. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we're almost coming into our special mailbag episode, but I'll try and scrape in one, maybe two. We'll see how we go. First next question is from Lewis, mate. Lewis says, hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Thank you, mate. I'm a 22-year-old. How good is that? And have been actively listening, or actively investing, sorry, since listening to your podcast. I think we've helped. This is like awesome. I know we've helped someone, mate. I knew we'd help someone. This you is know, the person. I'm jealous of all these people who are 20, oh, 22 mate, who are that. investing. This is like, <laughs> this is not, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I, well, I, I talk about investing. The other, thing, the other thing you can do is just start younger, right? Like, man, so much. You know, they say youth is wasted on the young. It is so true. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. But, man, Lewis, you're just doing a spectacular job, mate. Like, oh, you know. We would, Doc and I would give a decent, a very, very large amount of money to go back to 22 and start again because being able to make some of those good early decisions of just investing well, investing at all, saving hard um, at younger ages. I mean, I, I did a pretty good job. Doc did a pretty good job. But man, if it, time again, mate, we do different things, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good on you, Lois. Thank you. So he says, I'm keen to keep growing my portfolio. Here's a question, Doc, which I love. However, I'm not sure if it is better to keep smaller holdings and keep diversifying buying new shares in different companies, or should I focus on trying to grow my current holdings by dollar cost averaging? I currently have six holdings, mostly from your share advisor platform, with holdings ranging from 800 bucks to two grand. I think it's a really cool question, right? So we've talked already about trying to get to as many companies as you can as quickly as possible. 
Lewis has six holdings. And again, Lewis, like others who've asked the question, we can't give you specific advice for you personally. But mate, if you're talking to someone who's got six, they're starting out, they're super young. Hopefully he's adding regularly. He certainly says he's going to because he's going to either add to new holdings or add to existing ones. What should you do, mate? Buy more stocks or add to the ones you already own? So, you know, I'm going to go back to my younger self and this is what I'd, <laughs> I'd say. I was, <laughs> I was not 22. <laughs> but, but, you know, what I would... Oh, if I could stop my youngest off from buying a car, yeah. I'd be very happy. I'd be much richer today. The, the governor is coming. <laughs> <laughs> the governor is so coming for you. <laughs> You're stopping people from buying oh, cars man. and you know and stuff like that. To have my choices again at 22. Anyway, go on. So the first thing I think I think having 15 to 20 stocks that diversify your portfolio, I think is is like you know something that across the Motley Fool. I think we say, yep. and and I think this is really powerful. So I, I guess step one would be like if you know my I'd just use. Sharevisor, as an example, mm-hmm. and um, not, because I, not, because I, <laughs> not because I love the service or anything, or have anything to do with that service. I yeah. have nothing to do with that service. Um, um, I would just buy one stock. You know, there's a stock recommendation every month. Just buy um, and build the portfolio up to, say, 15, 20 stocks. Mm-hmm. At, at that point, though, once you've got about 15 to 20, mm-hmm. you've got enough for diversification, right? And that yeah. becomes a good point uh, for figuring out um, where to add more money, right? And that point, you know, you can basically add money to the ideas that you like best, which are the companies that are performing uh, the best. You can use, you know, we have a, we have a feature called Best Buys Now, mm. which basically picks from the existing recommendation stocks that um, uh, we think are good value and, uh, you know, have a good probability of beating the market going yep. forward. So, you know, adding money to those at, at that point uh, is is another way of adding to existing positions. So, you know, so I think first step, diversify, get to a good base. Once you've got there, um, add money to existing ideas. I mean, it's hard to add money to ideas, especially if they've gone up. It's very counterintuitive, yeah. but 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 sometimes you know you you are adding money to companies that have gone up because you know because people have recognized the value the company has done well and it's yeah. being valued as such, and it could actually be a sign that you know better things are to come in the years ahead. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's one way of going about it. Nice, I like that, mate. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a slightly different tack. Um, I, look, I the first thing is I completely agree with you, mate. I think for any investor, getting the fifteen stocks as quickly as possible is almost certainly the best thing you can do now. Adding a couple of ETFs might change that slightly because you're getting that diversification a different way. But if you're going to buy individual stocks, and we think you, you should for most people, um, get to that 15 stocks as quickly as you reasonably can is smart. So generally speaking, I'd err on the side, if I was in Lewis's position or someone else's similar position, I'd err on the side of adding to adding new positions rather than adding to existing ones. So that's the first thing I'd say. After that, though, I... So here's, here's, let me give you two sides of the same coin. Once you've got to that point, I wouldn't even think about new or existing I'd simply think about if I've got a thousand bucks, where is my best investment idea? If it's a new stock, I should buy that. If it's an existing stock, I should add to that. So if I can choose, like if I've got, pick a number, $5,000 worth of Berkshire shares or $1,000 worth of Woolly shares or I like uh, West Farmers, pick numbers, it doesn't really matter whether which one of those I already own. It doesn't really even matter too much how much I've got in each one, although it does at some level. Just think about, right, if I've got to put $1,000 to work, I want to get the best possible return for that 1000 bucks. Like it doesn't, you know, so that's what my only question is, where do I get the best possible return from? And I think from my mind, I would simply ignore, I would ignore the question of whether it's new or existing and simply just buy whichever I thought was the most promising business at the then current price, even if, as you say, the price has gone up. So get to 15 as quickly as you can. But after that, try and be agnostic as to whether it's a new or existing position. Now, there's two quick caveats. The first is, if my position was already too large, if if 
Berkshire Hathaway was 78% of my portfolio, I probably wouldn't add more to that um, just because it makes more sense to diversify. So at some level, you want to start thinking about if you already own it, how much do you own and how big is it as a proportion of your portfolio, either because you've added lots or because the shares have gone up. So that's the first thing to think about. The second thing is, again, I would be agnostic as whether they're new or existing, but at some point, if I've got 85 different companies in my portfolio, I'm going to start to think about my chance of actually being able to reasonably keep across all of those positions. So if my best idea is the 86th company I can think of, then do I want to add another company to that list? I probably don't. Or more importantly, I probably do, but I may want to sell or sell down some of the existing positions because they probably aren't my best ideas right now. So if I own 85 companies, my 85th best one is probably not going to do as well as my top dozen or 15 or 25 ideas. So you want to do some active portfolio management at some level, as long as you're not incurring too much tax or too many trading costs. Um, so you know, as you get to a big portfolio, just think about not making it too much bigger, either by not adding a new position if you don't want to, or by thinking about how you might manage the current portfolio, just to keep it up to a manageable size. Uh, but again, broadly speaking, be agnostic. If you can cover a lot of stocks, follow a lot of stocks, by all means do that. Otherwise, just think about how maybe the whole thing might come together and whether you can find a better way to manage that portfolio as a whole. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. You actually had a very good answer there. Like an awesome answer. You sound surprised, dude. Well, no. I'm, I'm just genuinely <laughs> complimenting the answer. See, now I'm... I, I... Sometimes See, I have genuine compliments. Well, my next, my next question is from Yannick, but I'm, I'm actually wondering whether to stop here. I don't, I don't, I don't know if my, the compliments get any better than that. I probably should just call the thing off. And... That's probably a good point, but we'll, <laughs> we'll take that question. Are you sure? Yeah. We have to? We should. Just as we finish this, just maybe you might want to remember, remind our listeners that I had a good answer. You had an awesome answer. There we go. Maybe say that at the end. All right. <laughs> Let's quickly get to Yannick's question, then we'll wrap this thing up. Yannick says, hello, Scott and Doc. My name is Yannick, and I'm a slightly older uni student at 34. Mate, just quietly. Don't say you're slightly older if you're younger than me, all right? You're a very, very young man. That is not older. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a slightly older uni student, God knows how old that makes me. He says, I'm studying a Bachelor of Business and majoring in financial planning. That's kind of cool. I must say your podcast has certainly enlightened and educated me. This is just slightly more entertaining than some of my lectures and tutorials. Ha ha. I'm assuming he's being like ironic there. I assume it's much, much more interesting and funny. <laughs> funny in particular. I'm very funny. Have I mentioned that? Yeah, you are. Thank you. He says, I enjoy the challenge of trying to fool on on a daily basis thanks to you too. Excellent, Yannick. I'm asking if you could spare five minutes and give us your insights into using the bank's money to borrow and invest in shares or ETFs or index funds through margin lending. Rates are at an all-time low to borrow, and there are some potentially great shares to get a hold of to aid in portfolio growth. Yes, there are definitely risks involved, but I think listeners would benefit from your insight. Thank you, Yannick. He signs off saying, enthusiastically spreading the full-on mantra. Good man, Yannick. Just be careful. Just make sure you share it in context. If you walk down the street just yelling at people to fool on, they may, they may take umbrage at that, and you may get yourself knocked out. So just make sure you choose your audience well. <laughs> but I appreciate, we appreciate your, uh, your sharing of the foolish mantra, mate. That's very, very kind. Um, Doc, we've talked a little bit about borrowing already, but Yannick asks a very good question. Rates are low. Shares are attractive. Businesses are great. Stock market growth is tended to be pretty good. Surely using some of the bank's money to just, you know, give the portfolio a bit of a boost can't be a terrible thing, can it? No, uh, leverage is, is how good people die, basically. So, um, sure that's exactly Buffett's quote, but it's not a bad, well, uh, not I bad paraphrasing. Made, uh, I, just, <laughs> I just made that up. Um, yeah, I wouldn't do it largely, largely because, again, the, the many things, right? The, so the rates are low right now, which means you can borrow for low, but you, you know, you basically your shares are collateral, which means if something goes wrong in the portfolio, the the bank might say, well, you know, you have dipped below the you know the value that you were supposed to maintain, yep. and therefore they're going to they could actually sell stuff, 
which is basically not, not they could they will and oh, they'll, they'll, do it, will. they'll do it arbitrarily <laughs> and they'll do it arbitrarily oh, yeah. may, I mean I, I said they could because you can maybe you can <laughs> call, make it call them maybe you True. could you know uh, you know work something out with your broker and your bank uh, but I mean that's a really uncomfortable position to be in yeah. where you are forced to sell at potentially a market low or a low where you know when you actually want to be buying maybe right yeah. so so that that's that, that the situation where it becomes where where investing gets out of your control is really when somebody else is actually making those decisions for you which is which is really an uncomfortable place so that's that's why i don't really like that idea uh, number 2 is that another thing to realize is is right now the interest rates are low so the market is you know it prices up equities but yep. eventually interest rates will go up at some point which means the market will at that point price the equities in a different way right and we don't know when that happens but if that happens on a time frame before before the returns that you want to get have come by then you might have a problem as well with that right so this is an important point but just to quickly drill into that very very quickly when rates are low asset prices tend to be higher because money is cheaper and so you can simply afford to pay more for the same stream of profits, right? So if you think about that, you know, how much would you pay for, if I, if I get $100 a year in profit, how much would I pay for that? Now, if rates are high, you wouldn't pay much for that at all because you get more money elsewhere. You get If I, if I get 6% in the bank, do I really want to get 8% in the shares? Probably not. If I can only get 1% in the bank, I'm going to pay a lot more to get access to those earnings. So as you say, if, rates, if and when rates go up, in theory, all asset prices, if not necessarily come down, should have the old politician's favorite, downward pressure on yeah. asset prices, right? Yeah. And and, and and so you get downward pressure and your in, and and presumably the margin <laughs> yeah, right. loans interest has also gone up. So your so costs it, are up and your returns are down. Yeah. That's, that's pretty ugly. That's a pretty ugly situation. So I think just for the, the, the whole setup of margin lending is really not in the investor's mm. favor. It really is helping the person who is lending you the money because they are out there yeah, to right. make money, right? Like most right. lending, you know, the lender is actually going to make money. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of this approach. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna agree with you, Matt. Look, I've said this before. Here's the problem. Um, rationally, in a perfect world where things didn't go against you, this makes some degree of sense. If I can borrow for 4 5 6% and 10%, well... I should, could, and would, right? Because, hey, if you use the bank's money, if I can borrow 100 bucks from the bank, it costs me 6%, so I pay 6 bucks a year to do that, and I get $10 a year in profits, well, I'm still 4 bucks better off, so why wouldn't I do it? It seems like a pretty easy question to answer. The problem is that at some point, let's say you're 100 bucks, let's the market falls 50%. Now, it fell about 45% during the GFC, but I'll use 50 just because it's just easier for maths, right? I buy 100 bucks worth of shares. They fall to 50. The bank says, um, yeah, so about that, Scott, I'm going to, have that money. I want my back money back right now. I said, well, I haven't got 50 bucks. I, I bought shares. The bank, the bank says, well, that's okay. I'll sell the shares for you. And I'll take all my money back. Now I'm then 50 bucks in the hole because I still am a hundred. They've sold 50 bucks with the shares because they want some money back. Even if those shares then go to 200 over time, I don't get the benefit of that gain because they've already sold my shares. And they literally will, I kid you not, they will literally just decide outright sell your shares. You'll get what they call a margin call and they will say, hey, we want some money. And if you don't have that money, we're going to sell your shares. Now, you probably haven't got the money because if you've got this money, you could have used and bought the, buy the shares in the first place. So you might as well have done that. If you have got the money, you can pay them off. But if you haven't got it, you probably don't because you used margin in the first place. They're going to sell your shares. You owe the money. The shares go down. They go back 200 bucks. If you had just plain old cash, you would have made money. But now you owe the bank money plus you missed out on the game in the shares. Um, in a perfect world when everything goes right, it's a really, really smart strategy. As I've said a couple of times, as Buffett said, leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke. Or as Doc said, 
What did you say? Leverage is the only way you can get killed or something? I think yeah, you said. when a smart person it's is about killed. Being dead. a smart person killed. Uh, that's, that's, that's about right. So, uh, I mean, I get it. You're studying financial planning. You've done the maths. You can see how that might work. A, a cost of six, a return of 10. Hey, there's a, there's a profit there. Go and take it. Um, makes perfect, perfect sense if everything goes right. The possibility, though, at some point over your investing career, Yannick, the market falls 50%, the bank effectively calls your shares. It's just too high to, to be worthwhile, right? So again, I'll come back to that theme we've mentioned a couple of times, probably a good way to finish. Don't get rich quick, get rich slowly. Because you will, you know, there's, as long as you can save enough, the, the, the chance of you doing very, very, very well investing in shares is very, very, very high. Um, you just, you know, the long-term returns on shares about 10% a year, even if it was 7% a year, like even if it, even if that average return fell by 30%, if you can invest for 40 years, you're 32 now, you're going to still be investing when you're 65 and older because you're going to hopefully live on the income rather than needing to sell the shares. You might be investing for those 70 years of your life. The chance that you're not going to make a lot of money doing that is really, really low as long as you can add regularly and let compounding do its thing. To risk that on the chance of maybe getting a little bit of higher return, I get, the, I get the, the desire. I get why it feels like you kind of want to because, hey, there's more money to be made there. I don't know, mate. If I was you, I'd be saying, you know what? I'll happily get rich slowly. That's a sport you don't want to play. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, uh, you can do base jumping as long as you want, but eventually it's going to come. Yeah. Going yeah, to come they, you know, 7% is basically double every 10 years. Here's the other thing, right? right? Uh, in 40 years, if you, hold, if you bought a stock today that's paying, let's say, uh, a company that's paying 1% dividend. Yep. In 30 years, if the company is still around and you own it, it's yep. probably going to be paying a lot more dividend in True. on the like you know cost basis that you've had, right? So, True. I mean, your dividends could actually be substantial. I mean, it's it's hard to look out 40 years, but you know that's yep. the way to do it. Yep. And if, again, doubling doubling every 10 years is important, right? Because it doesn't go one, two, three, four. It goes one, two, four, eight, and then 16, 32, 64, 128, and so on, right? If you can have something double five times, so that takes you 100 bucks to 200 bucks to 400, 800, 600, 3200 dollars. That's a 32 times gain yeah. in money you put aside now. If it can double five times, if it's 7% a year, that's 50 years. So by the time you're 82, mate, you've turned your, thousand, your 100 bucks into 3,200. If you do it every seven years or so, because the market generally tends to earn about 10% a year, that happens in 35 years. So basically when you're retiring, that's a pretty nice gain. If you can just save some more money rather than trying to take on debt, I would strongly recommend it. Yep. I have nothing to add to that. Very good. Mate, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Yeah, you should. Well, as, as I well, pretend we're here on a Sunday. Yeah, morning, we have pretended. Well, well, all our listeners should be enjoying their Sunday. <laughs> Hopefully, you are. If you're not, uh, my apologies because we wasted an hour of your time. But if you're enjoying it, then we're, we're we're pretty glad. And that wraps up this special mailbag episode. The good news, if you're keen on mailbag, the bad news, if you have any question answered, we've still got some in the mailbag, Doc. I didn't even get to the bottom. The bottom of the mailbag. Next week, we'll try and get through the rest of them before we go. Hopefully you already have, but if you haven't, please subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money Podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars as always. Welcome. Leave us a review. Tell your friends, because who couldn't use a little bit more foolish insight? Nobody is the answer. Everybody needs a little bit of foolishness in their lives, because, you know, happier, smarter, richer. It's a pretty good combination. And don't forget, you can get a special dose of that foolishness via your email inbox. Go to fool.com.au forward slash... Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money and a special Sunday Motley Full Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.